Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to XJob Downloaded. This podcast contains details of extreme violence and death. Enjoy today's episode. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Simon Maloney. Now, Simon was a member of the British Army. He was in the Household Cavalry, if I remember rightly, and went on to be awarded the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. Good morning to you, sir. Morning, Paul. How are we? Have I got that right? Have I got the introduction right? Bang on. I'd say I've been called a lot worse. Uh, I'll take that any day. (laughs) So, where did it all begin for Simon Maloney? Um, Grew up uh, Hertfordshire, um, between St Albans and and Luton. Um, Had a a good upbringing, strong, strong morals from both my parents, both hardworking. Grew up on a council estate which uh, wouldn't have changed. I think it taught me a lot about life and how you attack things. You know, I had a few hardships early on, which sort of forms forms your spirit or your character, I think, going forward. Um, was pretty good at school, but was just bored, I think. I wasn't I wasn't thick by any means, but I uh, didn't, didn't really have too much of interest in school. And I was that kid, I think, that never got over action, man. Every picture you see of me as a kid, I was always in always in camouflage and Dr. Martin boots and, you know, forcing my granddad, bless him, to dress up with me and, and whatever. Uh, so it was always ever, only ever going to be the army. I didn't think any further than that. But why did you join the Household Cavalry? What was the inspiration to join that? Uh, again, I did army cadets and stuff like that. And I always wanted to join the guards um, for the sort of non-military people. I know the Household Cavalry technically isn't the guards. I want to join the Household Division. Yeah. Um, I, I was just amazed by, you know, I always wanted to join the army, but I saw you see Troop in the Colour. I thought they were super smart and they sell it on telly to you, don't they? You know, well, the personal bodyguard of the Queen and and this and that. And I, I just thought they stood out as being super smart. I remember just seeing them all there. Um, as it transpires, I never did that side of things and never touched a horse or did anything ceremonial when I was in. But for me, it was it was super smart and that's what attracted me. I'm gutted because I wanted to ask you, how do you go from doing ceremonials outside Horse Guards Parade to fighting out in Afghanistan? But So you didn't yeah. touch this at all? Didn't touch it. Um, essentially, I was lucky enough to join at a time where you were going straight to Afghan. And, and I think usually the, the MO for, for the House of Cavalry was you, you finish your phase one training, you go over and do the ceremonial side of things. Uh, whether it was a slip of paperwork or what, when I went to do my phase two training, where you'd normally go off and meet your horse, uh, I went to the sort of armoured reconnaissance side and, and got stuck into all of that and then was, you know, straight into it, the operational regiment in Windsor. Because a lot of people don't realise that the household cavalry, as smart as they look, you know, the Blues and Royals sat outside on their horses outside Horse Guards Parade and taking part in the troop and everything else, changing the guard every day. They don't realise that you're effect- effectively tankies, aren't you? You know, you're, you you drive armoured vehicles. Well, the Household Cavalry was the most deployed unit in the Afghanistan campaign because the, 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 the regiment was split into different roles. So you had, 
you know, guys with 16 hour assault brigades, so you deployed with them. You then yeah. had guys with um, it, part of the brigade reconnaissance force, so you deployed with them. You then had guys doing the normal formation reconnaissance role. So each every you could essentially jump between squadrons and and bounce tours, and lads did. It's not uncommon in our regiment that lads did five, six tours of Iraq and Afghanistan over ten years. Wow. So you've done um, your. Where did you do your basic training? I was in Basingbourne, um, oh, okay. out towards Royston. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, it will. Yeah. So you, you do your basic. Are you with other regiments, or are you? Is it just the household cavalry? Yeah. So with with everyone, infantry. It was all arms, sort of, as we called all, all arms, simply because I was I was 17. So you sort of junior entry. So just everyone goes through a bit of a longer course. Um, they need a bit more, maybe a bit more. I say cuddling. That's not the word, but do you know what I mean. You get a bit more time to to progress and and, and a bit more chances. Yeah, that's it. Nurtured. That's the one. And how did you find that? Because if you have you gone in with other boy soldiers, you know, junior junior regiment or. Yeah, so everyone, every, everyone in my platoon was my age. So we were all junior soldiers. Um, it's a fucking big shock because, you know, I was tall, but I, I was about, you know, five stone piss wet through. And you just, you know, you're carrying weight. You know, I didn't need to shave. I was getting picked up every morning on the inspections because I hadn't shaved, but I didn't need to shave. But so I used to put a bit of shaving foam behind my ear so that at least he thought I'd shaved and I get picked up for that. But then he had, didn't pop at me for getting shaved. Um, you know, I didn't need to shave until way into my, after my first Afghan tour. I think on a windy day, I was fine, you know. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and like you say, you haven't got anybody there to pick up your mess, make your beds, do your washing up. You, you've, you've got to do everything for yourself, haven't you? Yeah, so it's a big shock. You go from... You know, having sort of, well, it's not long hair by any stretch of imagination, but to the army, it's long hair. You know, you go in, you get shaved. Everyone's got buzz cuts. Um, you know, you get run ragged in all the different uniforms that you've got. You know, they're all dirty. Make sure they're all dirty. You've all been crawling, all of them. And it's like, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And they say, right, room inspection at six in the morning. And, you know, guess what you do? You're hand washing your clothes, ironing it, drying it, ironing it, hanging it up. You know, you might get... 20 minutes sleep not on your bed on the floor because you don't want to mess your bed up and uh, then you get up and you fail the inspection again and it just goes like that it seems like weeks but you know in hindsight now you look back it was nothing it's just a blip at was, the time. was there any time though that you thought do you know what i've had enough of this i want to go home i would say no because i was 17. i uh, you know you're just like a dot bound loads of energy you're excited i didn't come from a particularly exciting area uh, and I was just army mad. So for me, I used to enjoy it. I tell you what, hats off to anyone that joins. You know, I left the army at 27 because I was getting fed up with, forgive for want of a better word, the bullshit. You know, I was starting to calculate like, well, that is not necessary or that is stupid, you know, yeah. and you get impatient with it. 17, you do what you want. You just bounce back, don't you? You think everything's amazing. You're happy for, you know, you got a meal, you know, a meal and a roof over your head. You're not, you're not bothered. It's, it's quality. So, so you get your you get your DPM and you've done all your weapons training. What did you get trained on? What weapons did you get trained on on your initial training? Initial training, just the SAAT, so that's the assault rifle. Um, and then when you go on to phase two training, so everyone you know is together. I'm with infantry, chefs, reconnaissance, tankies, like all everyone together. Phase two, chefs go off and do you know chef school. 
infantiers go off and do their bit. I went off down to Bobbington to do, you know, armoured reconnaissance. Um, and that's where you then learn more weapon systems. So you learn the GPMG machine gun. Um, that is actually it, actually. A GPMG machine gun, you might do a bit of grenade work, um, as in passing the tests and, and doing so you can use it on exercise and all. And then only when you go to your regiment then is, is when you really ramp up the weapons training. Is the GPMG still in in use in the, in the yeah, army? Yeah, mate. Battle winner. Exactly the same. Hasn't changed for years. No. Um, you know, you can you can you can dig it up and you know fire it. Essentially, it could be buried for years. It'll still go. Listen, we had those. We had a um, whatever. What do they call them? Uh, the activated one when I was in the army cadets. Yeah, you know, that, that was, and that's a long time ago, son. That's it's. And um, yeah, I mean, there's still, I tell you what, we also had, we had uh, 303s as well when I was in the Army Cadets. I mean, that's oh, wicked. That just shows you how, how long ago it was. But yeah, it was the thought, of, the thought of a teenager firing a 303. I mean, that, 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 that used to wake you up. <laughs> well, can you imagine? I mean, the, the force that would come out of one of those. And, you know, at 17, you think you're, you're particularly strong, but you're not, are you? It's not. Nah. I should imagine this SAA is far kinder on the shoulder. When you've you've done your you've done your training at Bovingdon, yeah. at what point do they say to you, there, there's your there's your airline ticket, get all your kit ready, you you're off to Bryce Norton and flying into Kabul? Yeah, so I wanted to join at, at 16. Mum was wasn't keen and uh, I said, Well the, the issue is mum, I will just go at 18 when I don't need your permission. So I says, You let me join at 16. I cannot deploy till I'm 18. I right. get two years of training, two years in uniform, two years getting fit, getting used to it, rather than, you know, having a couple of months training and getting shipped straight out, you know, from civilian to Afghan. She sort of what she knew I was I was I was at it, but she signed. Turned up at the unit at Household Cavalry Regiment at 17 after I've done both sides of my training, get put in with the corporal major. We don't have sergeants in the cavalry. So corporal major. Um he goes, how old are you? I said, 17. He goes, when are you 18? I said, February. He went, good, ring your mum, you're going Afghan in October. No. That was it, day one. Yeah, 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 yeah. He went, no, fuck off. I was like, quality. And <laughs> I, again, I was excited because it means, means you get embedded in, you can prove yourself straight away. Um, you know, lads, I think, rightly so, the new boy gets treated until he's tested and proven, but... We were put straight into pre-deployment training. I was fairly fit. I was very keen. Might not know much, but I didn't try to pretend I knew much. Um, and I, you know, got stuck in. And before you know it, the lads were. I had a chance to, to, for the other guys to go. He's not too bad. You know, we'll tolerate him. Yeah, <laughs> um, otherwise, that can go on for years. Yeah, absolutely right. And how did your mum take that phone call? Uh, at the time, I thought she took it well. Looking back, she probably didn't. Uh, no. you know as we'll get into it but you know probably a contributor factor to me leaving was I think they've been through enough now you realize how selfish you are and I've I've recently just had a kid and you know and on my thoughts of what I would want him to do I mean I'd want him to be happy but I, you know it would tear me to pieces yeah yeah no absolutely right it's mate. an interesting thought process yeah it is and, it, and your mind does sharpen as you as you go through life when you start having children um that gives you one perspective and then you, you you know you do your work stuff and you make sure that they're all okay and then you get to a point where you have grandchildren and you're you're and i'll tell you now and you you've been through this but your mortality 
hits you straight in the face. As you get older, and you've had like a near-death experience in real terms, but but as you get older, you start to face your mortality more, and your your focus changes. You, I don't know whether you become risk averse, but you do manage your risk a lot better than than I did when I was younger. I had no no fears when I was younger. But so you're you've done your your training, you've got your ticket. What was that like going to Bryce? Did you fly from Bryce Norton? Yeah, flew from Bryce. What was um, that? Do you know again? Because I'm 17, I'm 18 now, just 18. Oh, you're just excited. It's it's not quite a lads' holiday, but you, it's just the unexpected. You know, that's the reason I joined. You know, I've got mates at home in my peer group that were doing their A levels, and I'm getting ready to go to Afghan. I've read books about this, and you know, you read it in magazines about the Taliban. That you know, terrifying. They're all the all what they're up to, and you know, they are bad people. They're still bad people now. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we were we were going to go, you know, they posed a threat to us. And I truly believe that, you know, we can get into the politics a bit later on. At that time, they, you know, I truly believe they posed a threat to us. And I still do after what I've seen. And I got to go to their backyard and, and, have, a, and, have, a, and have a go at them. And that was just the closest that I was ever going to get to, you know, how proud I was of, you know, all of our, all of our veterans from, from D-Day or from World War One who went, right, you know, I'm going to give me a job up and go over because that's what's needed. And, you know, yeah, it was a bit of glory, but I was a young boy and I didn't find anything else exciting. So it was good. Um, and then reality hits you real quick when you're about 20 minutes out from um, Camp Bastion. The lights go out, um, helmets on, body armour on, brace position, dodging, you know, dodging RPGs or whatever they might be trying to chuck at you. I don't think we have ever actually had any near misses, but it's the drill you do. And then as you land, you run off the, on the runway. And obviously the boys that have just done six months out there they're running on and as they run on they were I, had a, I felt something hit me in the head and they were chucking first field dressings and tourniquets at me saying you're gonna fucking need this <laughs> and uh yeah all right it's banter but i remember going fucking hell i felt like the new guy from you know platoon you know in platoon like the little vietnam film that's what it felt like i was yeah. like oh mate this is gonna be atrocious what who did you take over from uh, we took over from Second Battalion Fusiliers out in Musakala, um, and we didn't really get a handover with them. We were we were a recce platoon, so we were handing over. Well, we meant to get a handover from the the, the Second Fusiliers recce platoon in Musakala, and um, basically, I think they got smashed up that much that there weren't many of them left, and and uh, they'd all just sacked it early. They'd back in Bastion. We turned up to like two vehicles. We we're meant to have four, or you know, ideally six. And uh, we're like, where are the other ones are? Oh, they've been blown up. Where are the guys? Are oh, they're all in hospital. And I remember thinking, fucking hell. I mean, you're jet lagged. You're still getting used to the heat. You're struggling anyway. You look like a real tourist. Do you know what I mean? You've got that like red glows. You know, you haven't got a tan. You've got that sun, sun-kissed yeah. skin, you know, from the Brit abroad sort of look. And I'm thinking, I, I look well out of place here. Um, and you're right. I mean, some regiments really did get beaten up. How many, is it, is it, how many of you went? So in my 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 troop there were sixteen, but we were part of a battle group of about five six hundred. We all deployed together, so it was a whole regimental deployment um, from our part. But you're so you're the reconnaissance, and you seek and find the enemy. Basically, you that's your that's your role. That's that was the idea. Yeah, um, you had recce by stealth, which you can't really do in Afghan. You can, but you 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 can't really. Terrain um, doesn't. The other, 
yeah, the, the, uh, the, the terrain in it is, is very porous. You can't, they're not a, an active military cutting around in uniforms. So you can't watch their, what they're doing at night because they just look like a farmer. And then, you know, they'll pick the weapon up two minutes before they need it and engage you. It's guerrilla warfare or insurgency. It's not guerrilla, it's insurgency. But the other way is wrecking by force, which is, you know, we have the, the flat, the forward line of enemy troops drive or patrol towards that forward line. And when you cross the line on the map, you can, you know, bet your bollocks that you're going to get opened up on. And then, you, you know, you try and push the flat back. So there'll be a certain compound they always whack you from. You then try and take that, clear it, bulldoze it, you know, but it means fighting up to it. And then hopefully push the flat back. And that's what you do. But the reality is every time you go through that, they you have to go through the ID belt, which they have put out to defend themselves. No different to what we would do or anyone defending a position would do. And every time you do that, you know, you're crossing that flat daily. Um, you will probably lose someone or someone will lose part of themselves every single time you go back and they guess what you're doing it again because you've got to make more of a point because you didn't get that compound um it's a it's a very very weird weird state of mind to be in your your first engagement with the enemy what was that like it's imagine you're out there and what you want, what you want is you want a small contact on your first patrol. You want to, you want to have it because otherwise you're waiting for it. It's like if you're in a fight, you wait for someone to punch you or you're dipping your toe in the cold water. What you need to do is go and jump in it. Sure. And then it's done then, isn't it? Does that make sense? But yep. you don't want it. So, you don't want something so catastrophic, you know, that you jump into it's minus minus zero and you have a bloody heart attack. You, you want a nice, easy contact. It's a bit cold. You get used to it because, you know, some of these lads were going out first patrol, three casualties, you know, um, ID initiated ambush, you know, absolute. And they're just they're just down then. They're just going downhill then for the rest of the tour. You've got to try and get your head together. You want to slowly build up, have a few contacts, enjoy yourself, build your confidence, especially as a young lad. Um, on my first contact we were on a, on a hill in these vehicles called jackals, like open buggy things with a very good weapons platform. You've got the, either a 50 cal machine gun or a grenade machine gun on the top and then a GPMG on the front, sometimes a double, a twin. Um, we were on, on this hill, basically stopping one village from getting to the next whilst the guys behind us, the infantry cleared through a sort of a village and we knew there's Taliban on the other side. We were like the cordon or the buffer. And uh, again, it was quite quiet. And uh, I said to my commander, I said, I need to jump out and have a piss. And, I've, you know, I obviously didn't wander too far away, but it was just at an angle where I could see down a wall or down a sort of an alleyway. And I'm pissing and I've seen someone jump out. And before I could sort of take, you know, corner your eye, before I could take it in, I've seen the puff of smoke. Then um, he's popped a, an RPG straight at me. Because of the way I was on a hill and they, they sort of swirl, they're not directly straight. Anyway, it just clipped the ground sort of 20 meters away. And that's what caused it to detonate as opposed to plowing into the side of the vehicle. But I think if it hit the vehicle, who knows? I mean, I would have been, I would have been peppered. But uh, as it stands, I've just, the blast sort of knocked me over. Check yourself. I'm pissing all down myself. Classic first contact, young lad, first contact coming out with, you know, piss down his trousers. But we were all okay. But that then initiated an ambush. A couple of the other vehicles took a lot of incoming and, my um, troop sergeant took, took one to the head, um, went through his helmet, pierced the top of his ear and ran round the back. So, so no. these helmets that, yeah, these helmets they're designed, they, they don't really take the impact head on because that would just wobble you. They can sort of let the bullet in and then it 
sort of diverts it out and pushes it out. Again, any expert on a helmet would explain that completely differently, but layman's terms, that's what sort of we understood. The impact knocked him out. And obviously you've got a load of claret coming from your ear. So his driver has looked at him, gone, fucking Craig's dead. Pop the smoke, send it up on the radio and just reversed out, which is our drill. You know, big smoke screen, get out there. Let's work out what's going on with the casualty. So we also then step forward and step up the rate of fire. So we've heard Craig's been hit. I've looked to my left. I can see that he's slumped over his machine gun. And then all of a sudden he's woken up, you know, as if he's, someone's been knocked down and come up again. And he's got back on the gun. And we were all a bit confused. Like, did he meant to report that? What's happened? Is Craig, you know, what's gone on? And it turns out, yeah, he woke up from the dead and carried on firing. I think his, um, I think his driver shit his pants twice that day. I should think he did. <laughs> um, but we're very lucky. It was the first contact and... Yeah, all right. We had a we had a close scrape, which sort of put the realism at home. But we didn't have you know any catastrophic injuries, and we all got away with it after you know you have a brew that night and have a laugh about it, and that does that's good for the confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's good for the confidence. But how how do you deal when when you lose a member of the troop? How do you deal with that in real terms? Because those memories, I mean, I find you captivating. I, I feel quite emotional to you, if I'm really honest with you. Because I'm really proud, and I won't, I won't get all this emotion in my podcast, but I'm really proud of what you boys do. And if we don't have you, then we are totally fucked. Because, yeah. you, you know, it's all right, a, a brigadier calling out for a citizen's army. People can't put litter in the bin. So how can they expect them to load a weapon and then go and use it and... Anyway, that's a, that's another story. But so, how do you deal with you know if you lose a a, um, a comrade or you know or they get so badly injured? How does that affect the morale of the troop? Um, you know, talking as a thirty-two year old now who's gone through his own little you know journey of PTSD and and has looked a lot more into sort of mental health and how you deal with stuff and and helping you know the lads at the time you you realize that someone's been hurt you turn it into anger and you put it back to the taliban but i would still do that now if i was at war because that is what you have got to do it's you or him he is trying to fucking kill you or your mates um so you need to get angry and you need to get get match the tempo of the situation you're in and that's what we would do because otherwise if you didn't and what you also do is switch yourself off the feelings go numb and all you feel is rage um and don't get me wrong, we're, we're not, I'm not saying we went out murdering and hacking heads off. You, you're completely controlled, but, you know, you've got weapon systems there and that's what you deal with it. That's the only emotion you feel. And, you know, you've got to suck it up and do what's right for, you know, Wardy who lost his legs or Paul who's just been smashed up, um, you know, broke his legs, thought he was going to lose his. Those situations, you're going out on patrol the next day, you got to go out and do it for him because, you know, he very nearly died. And you, you want to go home, look him in the eye and say, we went back there and we fucking dealt with it, mate. You know, it's done. And the other thing is, if you tolerate it, then you're next. 100%. Um, listen, they you soon realise, you know, not that you, we didn't think it before, but you get into these engagements, how they initiate the ambushes, you're like, these guys are slick. These guys are cunning foxes. And these guys will fucking kill you if they can. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's simple as that. So you've got to get aggressive and not give them a chance. Don't have mercy. And to be honest, it makes it easy. It makes it very easy. You know, I'm not saying... 
you, you filled with hate, but you know, it's not hard to get aggressive. You've been trained. We're the best in the world at what we do. And I, be, I still believe that now resources yeah. might not be the same, but the mentality of a British soldier is always has been the best in the world. Um, you know, a section of infantry can do what it takes a platoon of American soldiers do just from their tactics, the way they do things. And, and I, I truly still believe that now, but uh, yeah, it's time to time you're out here. You know, you're in the arena, you're in the boxing matches, you know, it's round 10 and you're in a heavyweight fight, you know, the world title fight. Let's, let's get it done. This is the, this is when it counts. And I, I, when you have a contact and the opposition are being killed and you're part of that, how does how do you feel then? Numb, I think. Um, this is this is a good a good question, because, you know, if I don't know later down the line, actually, it does maybe come back and not haunt you, but. You know, don't lose any sleep about killing Taliban, but you do need to process it somehow. Um, you know, when you're when you're 21, you've come home and you're you're drinking, fighting, and fucking for want of a better phrase. But you know, it's, that's all well and good. But eventually, something's going to surface. You've got to think about it. Um, you've got yeah. to also think of your, your mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you're human. At the end of the day, if you you're taking what. what I suppose from a outlook outside looking in, you've, if you've taken a life of somebody and you've got a modicum of humanity, and you know you're a dad now, et cetera, et cetera, that sits with you. You know, it's, you think about all the things that you've done in your life, and that is going to be. And I, I admire all the old boys that you know came home from the first and second world war, never spoke about it. I think talking is good. I think this is a great platform to to do that, but yeah, you've got you've got to be able to process that. You wouldn't be human if you didn't. No, I agree. I agree. If anyone it, it doesn't bother is a complete psychopath and is probably going to do something very bad later in life and end up in prison. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, also out there, you know, not won't mention names. People, you know, we've got the rules of engagement. You know, I never witnessed the rules of engagement being broken. But you had people that, you know, I've engaged the enemy because you think I really fucking had to there. You know, even if he was, he was, he looks, you know, young and innocent and you've, especially as a sniper, you get a bit more of a look at him. You know, he picks up a weapon system. You've got to do what you've got to do because he's going to, he's going to kill someone, potentially you or one of your mates. There were some people that at the time, you know, got a bit caught up in the moment still legally engaged people but you know would joke about it afterwards or you know fuck them and you know say this and say that and i think later on in life that will haunt them a bit you know i sort of was always in a mindset of i didn't i didn't want to do it there were some people i did there were some people i did the situations i knew we built up a picture on them i knew they were bad people didn't bother me at all you know i probably you know probably smiled as we as we pulled the trigger but some of them you know, you never went back bragging, you know, smoking and, you know, like, you, like you're in a Vietnam film. And I no. think some of the lads that did, it was maybe a big front. And I think, you know, when the wheels fell off, they fell off big time when it settles down back home, because you're not always going to be a soldier on operations in Afghanistan, like you said, and anyone that becomes a father or, you know, comes home and, he's, you know, you're not always going to be that person. That's an important transition, very, very delicate transition. Yeah. And, and it builds... The bravado sometimes camouflages their insecurities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you would have experienced it a lot more in the police, you know, main, mainly when I guess every bloke, his ego's kicking off. He's had a bit to drink. Yeah. yeah. Ch- 
changes a bit differently when it's uh, you know when they're sober and they're getting interviewed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're sitting across someone and and they've gone from being the biggest arsehole in town to being. I wish I hadn't have done that, you know. And uh, you know, but as I say, we're all human. We're all fallible. And but but if you didn't have that humanity, then there'd be something. You would be a psychopath. There's there's no yeah, doubt. Sure. Narcissistic psychopath. And and sometimes these feelings follow them through life you know the, the bravado around their relationships and everything else you know and we, we I used to see that a lot certainly you know people coming back from um overseas they found it difficult in relationships when they got home and uh, I worked in, I worked in Essex so it was a very um certainly in culture very heavily based around the military so I had a lot of, um, and I've said this a number of times but my dad was in the military so it, you know we were army barmy that that was that was the bottom line You've done your first tour of Afghanistan and you come back to the UK. Do you decompress anywhere on the way back? Yeah, you stop off at Cyprus, um, give them four cans of beer, um, more than enough. And they essentially lock you in a camp. Um, you know, you probably, you know, the bloke who wants the, the two lads that have been eyeing each other up the whole tour, getting each other's tits, they'll fight it out and end up hugging and crying and that's it done. You know that sort of gets sorted um they're quite clever they, i say it's, you know they're just essentially it's yeah, it's nothing poetic it's a load of squaddies getting drunk and uh punching each other but you'll um they'll give you comedians they normally get a load of stick and then the last one has listened to it and he just he's, he's the good one because he's sort of judged the crowd he's had three three guys before at get absolutely destroyed and then they they put someone on who sings songs are all singing oasis and you know that hopefully turns us turns the crowd a bit down and then they give you fresh uniform and you either go home a little bit hungover but it's meant to take the take the sting out of the tail before you you know go into town and and you know around windsor where i was based and, and kick off and cause those are problems and undo all the work in one night that the regiment's got of all the locals thinking you're lovely and then you've you know you turn the town red but um that was it mate and it was are you feeling all right yeah fine sweet um I sort of agree with it, sort of don't. I think I do actually think the more people talk about mental health, people will then come out of these issues that actually otherwise may have been fine and dealt with in other ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. You, you, you look at the guys in World War One. Uh, PTSD wasn't a thing, and now I don't agree with obviously people getting shot for cowardice who had shell shock, but you know it wasn't a thing. Blokes just knew they had to get on with it, and most of them did. You know, yeah. I don't know the percentages. I think if it was back then and it, we, we all had a time where we are now and we talk about mental health and anxiety and PTSD, the, ma- the fact of the matter is you are going to have anxiety. That whistle's going to blow and, you know, 80% of you are going to get wiped out. But, uh, you know, it, it's a needs must, boys. It's it's a very, I don't I don't know the answer. I'm just saying I think there is a degree of you got to get on with it because um, of the job you're in. But I think then there should be more of an effort on when you do come back, you catch the people and there's, you know, you completely surrounded them. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I listened to a number of books and there's a, a guy called Ian Moore. And I've had the honour of meeting him a, a couple of times and watching. And he's a comedian and he used to go out and do do depression stuff. And he tells a story in one of his books how he did it. And it was the most. Uh, it, 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 it was really sad you know the way that the way that the, the soldiers were and you know he, he found some of it really really tough to deal with 
Um, but yeah, it is. I, I I don't know the answer. I mean, I was I always remember, and I tell this story. The Paras were coming back to Colchester, and I was working on a murder, and we were we were in at Colchester Police Station, and when the Paras went away, obviously they, there's a rear party. Everyone, you know, they they'll leave a couple of, of guys behind at the, at the barracks, and they used to go into this particular nightclub, and one of the bouncers obviously didn't have his brain on that night and said, I hope your mates get killed whilst they're in Afghanistan. So, of course, the first thing they do is they come back, they get told this this story, and this six foot six bronzed, he, he could have only been a para. He could have only been a para, you know, his hair was longer because it had grown on the tour and and these three bouncers came out and one, two, three, just banged them straight out, straight out. And the adjutant comes in with the sergeant major and he says, uh, Sergeant Major, do you recognise any of the men in this uh, in this film? He said, no, sir. He said, thank you very much. Thank you, officer. And they just walked off into the sunset. You know, they knew they knew it was. They knew it was, but there was no way. And that's sometimes that's part of the decompression as well. Yeah, 100%. You've got to use your brain. I got in trouble myself after my first tour. Someone said very similar, a lapse of judgment. Um, yeah, but, you know... I'd say I got away with it. I managed to stay in the army, didn't go to jail, came out with a criminal record. But do you know what? I'm glad it happened young because you just learned that something, a little lapse of judgment like that could have changed the course of my life, could have absolutely ruined it and not just myself. You know, well, it's... Absolutely. Well, I interviewed Ben Close, who was a coal streamer, and he, he's written uh, books. He's, he's from the Luton area. And um, he came back and he cut somebody's ear off in a, in a pub fight. In a, I know uh, of Ben over over a girl you know and it's you know it's just people seem to forget that the army are trained to fight and there is a certain point where you've got to you've got to leave things alone don't keep don't keep poking the dog because the dog's going to bite you at some point wasn't there when was when was crown immunity a thing i mean to us it was a it was a it sounded like golden times you know you you would not saying it's all about fighting but you would get done and it'd be like don't get me wrong, the army would thrash you, but, you know, you'd have a, a, a dis, an agreement with the police, like, appreciate it, we'll deal with them. Like, I imagine well, that, is that how it was? I used to do that quite a lot. The, you know, they used to do joint patrols in Colchester and um, they'd, they'd bundle up the, the soldiers, send them back to the guard room and let the, the, the sergeant and the guard room sort them out. You know, because at the end of the day, unless somebody's been seriously hurt, I, I wouldn't want a custody suite full of young soldiers. It's the, so you're you're back. You've you've done your first tour. How soon do you go back on your second tour? By the time I was out there, would have been about two and a half years, which seems like a long time. But you'd have to do your snipers course. I went I went on sniper selection. Basically, I come back. I thought I want to be a sniper. Always wanted to be a sniper. But when I see that first tour, we took 30% casualties. So one in three of my troop were either, you know, maimed, lost limbs, you know, life-changing injuries. And I, and to be honest, I didn't I didn't do much. I don't think I don't think I hit anyone. Uh, all I did was dodge IEDs, hit IEDs, extract casualties. And I thought, this ain't. I'm not. I'm not having this. I, I really felt like I'd taken a beating, and it was. I was bitter, and it didn't. I wasn't too proud of it. And that's how it was, but you know, I thought I want to. Next time I go out there, I'm going to be having an effect on these guys, um, on the Taliban. So 
went on sniper selection and did my sniper course. That takes a while. You then got to sort of train up, become half decent. Then you go back into pre-deployment training. But my second tour was part of something called the Brigade Reconnaissance Force. So you've got to do a mini selection to get on that. And then your training is slightly different, slightly higher tempo. Not saying any better than anyone else, but the job we had was specialised, you know. Doesn't mean, you know, the lads that didn't do that were better soldiers, but we did have a more specialist role, which meant which meant we were at the at the business end a bit more, especially as a sniper. Um, it was it was going to be a good tour. Were, were you given recognised targets as a sniper? Would they say to you, um, in this village, we are looking for this particular person? Or how would that work? Yeah. So you'd, you'd always have a little t- an intelligence on, on people, um, who were the local commanders were, what they looked like. If there's a particularly punchy character that was coming in, um, the only time you maybe wouldn't is if it was foreign fighters. So you've got your foreign fighters coming in from Pakistan. These are the real guys that have trained hard to kill you, as opposed to what we call the $10 Taliban. So $10 Taliban is everyone in Afghan, especially Elman province, has an AK. The average wage is $2 a day. And Taliban say, here's $10 a day, pick that AK up and fight. And then you'll get your local leaders that then orchestrate, you know, you're going left, you're going right on the radios. Obviously, the guys moving across, you know, we weren't special forces, so we didn't have the intelligence picture or resources maybe that they would have got. But we just know they were foreign fighters, whether it be Chechen, whether it be Pakistani, you know, whoever it might be. Then you don't have much information on them. Do you know what I mean? They come from another country, but, you know, they're fucking good and they're causing problems. And that's why we'd go in. Um, But you would obviously sometimes get a target pack. You knew it was special um, or, you know, it was going to be punchy when you know, some some dude with an American accent would drop into your brief and then add a little bit on at the end. And, you know, you, you can use your imagination just to maybe who who they were. Yeah. And they'd give you a bit of information and you could be like, right, okay, Roger, it's probably a sign we're going to get into a big scrap here. <laughs> yeah. And um, how far out as a sniper would you would you pitch out? I mean, how far out do they do they go? Because if you watch the if you watch the films, they'll be a kilometre away and they've got a site the size of a, you know, the Hubble. Yeah. My my longest kill was 1,825 meters. Wow! Uh, I made that shot because it's perfect conditions. I was high up, and if I'm honest, it, the the bloke I hit was shooting at my best mate. Otherwise, I would never even attempted it. Um, but they were in a real tricky situation that it just dictated. You thought I thought I'll have a look. I could see someone, and I thought fuck it, I'll have a go. And I missed the first round. Missed with the first round, but at that distance, it's like someone it landed at his feet. And at that distance, it's just like someone's throwing a stone at your feet as opposed to a high velocity round because it's lost so much energy. So he sort of looked and I thought, this is my chance now. He's not he's not scarpered or hit the deck. So I put another three in the air and two of them hit him. So, you know, I, I say like I made this, this world-class shot. I, I essentially chucked three bullets at him and won it. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, one, I'll, take, I'll take the credit. 1,825. So 1,825. Yeah. I mean, after that, I, I nowhere near that. You know, you're looking at 600 meters would be probably ideal. Right. Um, you know, 600, 900, 1200 is really good. Um, you also wouldn't achieve that distance out in the UK. It's because the biometric pressure and the temperature there means the round gets a little bit better. You get a bit further out of the round, yeah. And what weapons do they do you use for for that? So, uh, Accuracy International, which is a British company, and it's just a 0.338 sniper rifle, so 0.338 of an inch or 8.59 millimetres is the, the diameter of the round. 
Uh, big hole, big hole. You're not getting that lump. That is, that is yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah. It's it's not ideal on the sniper's course. You'd be better off with the seven point six two or the you know three oh eight because stalking with that's a lot better. The three three eight is a bit heavier, but the reason the three three eight come in is for them long distance kills out in Afghan that was sometimes needed. You know, seven six two just didn't get near it. Anything over twelve hundred meters, you know, you're better off with a mortar tube trying to you know fire it up like that. You know, like a yeah. like a mortar tube. Um, so that's why we had that. And it was good, but like I said, really, when you're cutting around on the battlefield, sometimes it was a bit too cumbersome, and I would have rather the 762 all day. <laughs> Did you have to spend time out in the field, or were you, you? This is another classic Hollywood thing. You know, someone will spend a few days out in the in the field, and they'll dig themselves in, and they'll piss in bags, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, in Afghanistan, first tour, we'd sometimes do two, three days, you know, three weeks out if you're living off the vehicles. Um, because we're the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, um, we were living in Camp Bastion. So you have Wi-Fi, better food, showers, proper gym, laundry. We would launch via helicopter, so it called a half helicopter assault force. You'd land behind the IED belt, which I spoke about, you know, my first tour. Yeah. Uh, you'd you'd bound into into his back garden and you'd be in you'd take that compound that'd be your foot in and then you'd launch forward so you're sort of risk adverse you're always fighting but you kept catching him on the back foot you know he doesn't see you a mile off you land in, in the night in his back garden and, and take him by surprise so in that respect in you know on our second tour we were only out for sometimes eight hours uh, and i think my record from being in a firefight to having an ice cream in my hand was 45 minutes that's probably my proudest accolade. Uh, no, you've got better accolades than that, mate. I'd say that now. What was the camaraderie like out there? Oh, spot on. Um, you, you're very lucky as a human to experience that level of a bond. You know, you've got friends that it takes 20 years to build that bond and probably some sort of trauma and tragedy where someone's had to step up and be there for you. And you go, fucking hell, I can trust him or I can trust her. I had that with about 50 blokes before I was 25. I mean, how lucky am I when you think about it like that? You know, I've got blokes now I could ring up and you've experienced it. And, you know, it's it scratches a big itch. You know, I can sit back, not say sit back, but I've fucking lived already. I've had, I've got blokes that I've proven myself to, they've proven themselves to. And if you can take that on the chin and acknowledge that, you... Um, you, you soon become that bloke that doesn't have anything to prove. You know, you still see someone that's like, you know, you see a bloke, he's a lovely bloke, but, you know, he's in his 40s and he's, whatever he's doing, you think that's not healthy. You've still got something you need to do, an itch to scratch. Um, yeah. yeah. Some yeah. might argue that's hungry and, you know, it's good to have to be that, but, you know, I would argue if you're ever going to be peaceful, you need to scratch itches and just be happy with who you are. And I'd like to say with just the blokes I've got around me from my experiences in an Afghan alone, you know, I'd say I'm in a pretty good place. But for just off the back of them, you know. So talk me through your fateful day where you where you got your your medal, you know, where you where you were awarded the medal. Yeah, so we were going um going into an area called Yakchal. We knew that was going to be bad. Um essentially we um we'd heard the Afghan police had cleared it. And then we were just going to go and check it out. We knew the Afghan police hadn't cleared it because they, they hadn't sustained any casualties. And, and it was, you know, it would have taken us, you know, weeks of deliberate fighting to clear that area. Um, we landed 
uh, in the dark as normal, went towards a compound uh, that was our target compound. And I'd looked on the map and said that I wanted to set up on this particular roof because I had a commanded view of the area. It was high. It was on the edge as well. I felt it was easily defendable. And my my goal was to get up there, set the sniper rifle up. And as the boys then projected forward, I could, I could fire over their heads, you know, and, and engage any targets that might be giving them problems. Um, that's how it had worked all tour. You know, it wasn't new. It's what we were doing. That's what my role was. They knew the crack. We we worked well together. Um, set up. You imagine I'm an outer cordon. So imagine we're in a big circle. I'm on the outside looking in and the enemy's in the center of that circle. And we set up and as the sun come up, we're getting a bit of sporadic fire. It was, you know, we thought this is, this is on it. This is on it. It's going to be a, we, you know, I'll say it, a good day. We enjoyed fighting. Um, it's going to be a good day. We knew what we were doing. We're well drilled. You want a bit of a fight, you know, a boxer doesn't want to steamroll everyone. He wants to have a good, a good go, doesn't he? Um, and like I said, we, we've had sporadic fire um, and I sort of got, got a bit of incoming from behind me and this was sort of first first inkling there that things were unraveling or I hadn't built you know the picture in my mind of what was going on as maybe a little bit different to what really is going on um so turn around and I've seen what we call a dicker so a dicker is a you know he's Taliban you know he's not got his weapon on display he's got a radio he's got binoculars and he's having a little look at you binoculars he's saying you know bloody bar and then before you know it matey boy who he's told has popped up 10 meters in front of you and, and chucks a grenade in your hole um they'd even sometimes we'd have the rules of engagement to be able to engage dickers uh, we didn't have it that day sometimes they would tape a radio in a tree and they'd be leaning against the tree and he's you know he's, he's pressing the radio and, and and talking um i saw the guy He's about 240 meters away. I lazed it, you know, I was ready. I had him dialed in, I would have, I would have killed him. After permission, didn't get it. I'm now combing him with my sight. I'm looking for little, little bit of a weapon poking up above a wall, anything like that, that I can go, you know, boss, I can get you and I can, I can lead, yeah, PID and I can legally engage. I can, I'm applying the rules of engagement robustly, but Bosch, I've got it. Didn't have it. Oh, fuck it there's i'm facing outwards now there's better things on went back in and i'm covering the boys going in and it's fair play to the taliban the you know effective range with sa80 is 300 meters so those boys once they're uh in a section it's 600 okay so if you've got eight blokes firing at you it's effective from 600 meters away they waited till they were probably 650 meters away and they just went bang let's go they malleted my position um i didn't know at the time although i could probably could have guessed from the noise malleted us with 15 firing points so 15 separate positions all opened up uh, at me on the roof with with the guy next to me um try to deal with it try to get a foothold working out what the fuck's going on you know in that position really you need a couple of machine guns and sniper rifles redundant i can maybe hit the odd guy but what you want when you get ambushed is an initial weight of fire that's going to get the enemy's head down. And he goes, fuck, that gives you two seconds to work out what's going on, pull your pants up and get into a bit of cover or start to move rather than being fixed. And um, I said that never happened. Um, I've turned one way to engage what, where I could see, you know, muzzle flashes and whatnot. Um, and the guy, I'm pretty, well, I know it was the guy that I initially asked to engage before, um, it's fired around. It's gone in front of my mate's face. 
and ripped straight into my throat. So it hit me just behind the Adam's apple, went through, come out the other side. Um, I felt it. Um, I fe felt like I've not been struck by lightning, but I it probably feels like that. Um, I'm, you know, boof, sort of, just like, you know, like God just sort of ragged you around by your, by your helmet a little bit. I thought, fuck, I've, I've been it here. So I rolled off the roof just with my rifle, just rolled and rolled and rolled until I've come off the edge of it because it was just dust was kicking up everywhere. It was very Hollywood, um, very Hollywood. But, you know, I probably wasn't as cool as um, Bradley Cooper in American Sniper. I was probably probably screaming and there was a trail of piss, but um, fell off the roof, um, landed on my feet. So I was expecting a big fall, probably would have maybe done some damage to my spine and, or neck, depending. I was a big lad, but I had body armor on. You don't know how you're going to land. Turns out I landed on a goat. That goat's on all fours, like arms spread out, absolutely shit stake. Some 100 kilo meatheads just rolled on him with all his body armor. I landed on my feet. Anyway, I can't see my neck, but I can feel it. I've got two holes either side of my, my Adam's apple. Look down, I've got blood all over my hand. But it's not spurting up the wall. So it's sort of, it's not arterial. I'm taking deep breaths. I can't hear gargling and I'm breathing okay. I'm not choking. I'm thinking, might be all right here. But I thought, probably not going to be all right. I've fucking been shot in the throat, I think. So I thought, right, got a couple of minutes left here before I'm dead. Um, Ash was stepping up. Ash was on the roof of me. He's now giving it, you know, he, he was really giving it some of the machine gun, trying to get a foothold. Um, I ran around the side of the doorway because I've seen a bit of movement. Um, I, I think three, potentially four Taliban stacked up about 20 metres away in a ditch i mean they, they've obviously used this as cover they would have come in and, and probably well they were they were they were close enough to toss a grenade in and we tossed a grenade out and um and uh, give give them a load of fire not sure which of them died or whether they just got a, got a, got an handful of rounds and um and extracted themselves they so say it was all a bit hazy um and then you think we're in a position now where there's us two lads we had a camera crew with us which we never had again. We said they were they were jinx jinxed. Anyone that had them with them just got absolutely malleted. So we're like, you can fucking stay away. Um, and we had a, we had a, we had a punchy five minutes of just real fighting, real like closer than I'd ever have liked to have been uh, to to the to the to blokes coming in. You don't mind chasing them down, but it's a bit different when uh, when they're chasing you. Um, and like I said I, I didn't actually get it. I got it on the radio called over that I've been injured, didn't expect nothing. And um what the radio, the, the the medics come running running through the door probably three, four minutes after I initially sent it on the radio. He's run through 200 meters of open ground, being shot at, past Taliban that are shooting at me, um, just as medics do. Um, and he's come in and he's like, and then sort of had, I've had a little look. I'm running around like a blue ass flight. I've got the footage, I'll send you it if you're interested. Oh I'm Absolutely, I'm absolutely captivated. Interested doesn't even cover it. So please, please do. Yeah. So um, the, the medics come in. We we got on well. Um, and where's where's Masters? He got military cost for his action, and rightly so. Um, he sort of, he, he never he never you always got a joke out of him. He's never flapping. Um, he, he looks at me, and I'm I'm looking for the poker face. Yeah, I'm looking for him to turn around and go like he's fucked. Like like I had done before, <laughs> you know. When you look, you know, you must have had, a, you know, in your career, oh, you had yeah, yeah. a number of casualties, and you sort of when it's quiet, you look at your mate, you go, he's gone. Yeah. Right. 
that's what I was waiting for. I'm, I'm looking for him to be like, because he went, so are you going to be fine? And I thought, fucking hell, he's got a good poker face. <laughs> and, then, and I'm looking for him to turn around to the boss, you know, and be like, he's, he's, he's game over. But he was all right. And he, he goes, I've got it. And he, he patched the bleed up. Um, and to be fair, if he says it's fine, it's fine. I take him to this. We're, you know, we're a very professional relationship there. We were in it, you know, he told me how it was and I trusted him. So after that, I was all right. Um, my commander had a quick look at me, you know, big, hard, mank, 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 um, mank bloke, my section commander. And he, he straight away was like, right, let's fucking get these guys. So, you know, we, we've got people up on the roofs and because the section had then come back by this point in with the medic. So we had like, you know, 13, 14 of us rather than two. Um, got in a position, started to give it back. And like I said, I had the bandage put, put on my um, throat. But I've said to him, I said to my commander, I know where he is. I, I need to get him. So he goes, right. So he, he actually jumped up. He goes, you've definitely got him. He says, yeah, I know where he is. And he hadn't moved. It was exactly the same place, same bloke as I said before. So I, um, I was expecting him to put down a big rate of fire and he didn't. Well, he did, but he also walked up and down the roof. What yeah, yeah, to try and draw the guy out. He's he goes, You definitely got him. He got mentioned in the dispatches for this, as well as a bollock in. It was sort of like, you know, um bit of a shit sandwich, really. <laughs> yeah. He um he walked up and down, matey boys popped up thinking he can get, you know, number two of the day. And you know, I I, I fucking I drilled him. Um got him, got very angry, put another round into him, and then someone else has gone to pop, pop out from behind him and, and put a burst, and uh, I, I took a second round to the helmet. Um, so I'm sort of got a middle middle parting down my helmet. I've jumped out of the doorway. And on the footage I'll send you, you can see the dust ping off my helmet. At the time, I wasn't sure. I, just, I knew it was fucking close. And then when I've watched the footage back, I've gone, Jesus, um, and looked at the helmet. But... Uh, after that, I wound me neck in. But um, we had a good day after that, mate. Like I said, the, the five minutes of panic, uh, and this is what I said to you earlier about the bombs, right? I was really in the shit. I was in the hands of, of I'm not religious, but, you know, the hands of fate, you know, it was nothing I could do. And the boys are like, don't worry about that. We've got you. They were ready to extract me. They were ready to fight for me. They were ready to, you know, what what a human gets to experience that. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um so we, we, we carried on fighting for 90 minutes. Um, and then eventually the, it was the Americans. This is the 4th of July. The Americans come in Independence Day and save a Brit. I mean, I'd rather walk back the amount of shit they give me. You know I mean? <laughs> no, they, they were spot on. They were spot on. They didn't, um, they, they, you know, we had a bit of banter, but again, they didn't yeah. know me at all. They didn't know me at all. They've landed. Um, they've landed to come off and get me. And I've sprinted past them because I'm. They think I'm on a stretcher, and they said, "Where's the casualty?" They said he's on that helicopter. I was like, "Fucking get me out of here!" You know, we were getting absolutely destroyed. They ran back, and they were like, "I said, what were you doing?" And they said, "Well, we were just going to land and fight with you. We didn't know. We didn't know if you were going to survive." I was thinking, "You don't know me." They said, "That's what we do, man." And like, I was like, "That is cool." Yeah, fantastic. What year was that? 2013. Yeah, 2013. Lifetime ago now. I'll be. I'm sitting here in tears. <laughs> Sorry. Right, back in the room. So, 
you've been evacuated back to um fucking hell. <laughs> uh, you've you've been evacuated back to Bastion. Correct. How long were you recuperating from this, mate? If you don't believe in God, go and buy a fucking lottery ticket because the, it's just it's it's absolutely it's incredible. But how long were yeah. you re- recuperating? In total, three weeks. So went went to the hospital. Um, I mean, they were amazing. You, you turn up, you think, you know, in, no disrespect to the NHS, I think, I think they're massively under-resourced and I think they do a great job. But there you had every specialist in a room and they're like fighting over who's going to do what, you know, cardio, cardio, ear, nose and throat. I'm going to do this. Plastic surgeon saying, I'm going to do this. And that's, that's, that's the extent of my knowledge of categories, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and within, within an hour, I'm, I'm in surgery. I've had a, a full scan with the old ink in and to work out exactly what's happened and, they actually said before the surgery, um, the surgeon couldn't have made that incision that Bullet made with a scalpel and operating table without killing me. He said, he said the only way I think has happened is the, the kinetic en- energy. Imagine if you punch a punch bag or a bag of water, it ripples out. And that's sent sort of main arteries one way, windpipe the other, and somehow the bullet's gone through soft tissue. It also helped that it was a trace around. So it's cauterized on the way through, stemmed a lot of the bleeding. Um, so they operated on me that day. I flew back to England a couple of days later and then had, I think, you know, two and a half, three weeks at home and the stitches were out. Once the stitches are out, I was clear to come home. Um, I had a few psychiatric, psychiatric evaluations, but the best thing I could have done is get back out there. If I'd have gone home and stayed there, I think my mental health would have gone one way and that's down. I've got to go out, be back with the lads, back on the horse. I was there for other lads getting injured. I didn't feel disassociated or, you know, none of that. I was back in with the guys doing what I did and I could finish the tour, which was, you know, super important to me. I was very lucky. How were your parents about, you know, you being injured? Yeah, so I got injured. Next to Kim was my mum. Mum gets a fuck. They go, they go, you need to ring your mum. So it's about half four in the morning back in the UK. They said, you have a ringer now when you go under the knife. She's going to get a knock at the door. So we'll ring her now. So she ring, rings, rings um, the, the the doctor rings her. She's she's howling on the phone. She's, yeah, it's Colonel Surgeon so and so. She's howling already. She says, "No, no, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine." Because of the nature of the operation we were on, I couldn't tell her exactly what happened. And you still got blokes on the ground and stuff like that. So just said, "Listen, I'm avert my neck. I'll be home in a couple of days." Uh, she goes, "Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. and it's I've got. They're waiting to take me down to surgery." I said, "Listen, mum, I'm fucking talking to you. I'm going to be fine." When I eventually got back to uh, Selly Oak Hospital in Birmingham, mum and dad waiting for me. First thing, she, I'm walking, she, I'm fine. First thing she does, give me a big slap. Don't you ever talk to me like that again. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh my God. You know, we, we come back, she goes, oh, at least, at least, at least you're home now. I says, I ain't. I said, I'm, I'm going back out. And I think that was a tough one to swallow as much as she understood it. And this is why, you know, the, the selflessness you've got to be to, We've got to have sorry to be a parent is uh is second to none isn't it anyone that's a mother or father is an absolute saint because you've just got to put yourself aside simple yeah. as that you know that your kids you know she knew i wanted to do stuff she know i had to do it and she you know it's not about me it's about what he wants as, as much as whether it's the right thing or the bad the bad you know right or wrong thing you've got to sometimes let people make their own mistakes to learn and yeah oh not that, that was a mistake but uh you know what i mean yeah no no but yeah absolutely right absolutely right you go back and you you conclude your tour. 
Did you go back to Afghanistan again after that? After that tour, no. Yeah. So when were you told that you were being put, in, put up for an award? Um, I was on a course called Junior Brecon uh, the following year. Come back in October, this would have been maybe March. Um, the honours and awards list has come out. I'm in this course in Brecon to get promoted to corporal 16 weeks. Shit. Um, I'm also cavalry. I've got a blue beret. Everyone else there is infantry. They've got a green beret. You know, it's a bit of banter, you know, paras, guards, you know, whatever. Yeah. So uh, I get a knock at the door. I'm in, in mid-lesson. Maloney, your colonel's on the phone. I'm thinking, fuck, because I've been a bit of a nightmare the weekend before in downtown. I thought something's come back about that. And I was also, we were all taking all sorts of, not steroids, but we we're taking all sorts of like testosterone boosters that we'd got from the American PX in Afghan to try and get big in the gym. I thought, I failed a piss test. I'm going to get done for that. I'm fucking thinking, I haven't really got an excuse for either, to be honest. I'm just going to have to take this on the chin and see what happens. So it's Court Maloney. Yes, Colonel. Delighted to announce you, you've been awarded. The honours and awards list come out today. I thought, honours and awards list? That's, that's not, it's not, you know, it's not the police sheet or the, or the, the, the drugs test fucking it's people it says you've been awarded a conspicuous gallantry cross for your actions in Afghanistan uh it goes yeah so you know you you know your bloody blast Simon Maloney CGC got off the phone and the OC the major at Brecon's he I think you'd had a chat with him before he knew the crack uh just looked and he he knew what I was going to say he went straight on his computer and Google conspicuous gallantry cross because I didn't have a fucking clue what it was um and then it you're like, oh, it's the second highest. Second um, highest, son. What what did bother me is I, I thought it was to do with something else. We had a but a, a real shit day in my last patrol where I lost lost one of my mates. He was killed, and I was you know right next to him when we dealt with that. And and I instantly felt guilt for getting an award because I thought oh, I don't want it for for that. Then you really decide to get your citation sort of that week, and it, you I went, oh, it was for that. I'm not, and I'm not saying I did two worthy no, medal no. winning actions. I just mean naturally your mind, you just, you know, I was still a bit torn up about that. Well, I still am. But um, then it was to do with that. And I was like, right. And I had a bit of an awkward conversation. Not awkward. I rung, rung Jay's dad and just said, listen, mate, I've been given an award. I don't feel very good about it. And he, he put me at ease, bless him. He was, he was spot on. But um, then after that, you, you then start to, everything I put my mum through, you go, mum, getting an award, you're coming to Windsor Castle, you're going to meet the Queen. And for that reason, I will, you know, never say, never say that medal was a bad thing. It was absolutely brilliant. I, I'm proud of you, mate. I'll tell you. I appreciate that. I, I just, I think that these awards are not given lightly. You know, I, I went to the Ashcroft Gallery in the Imperial War Museum last week. And the, the award that you got was... Um, initiated in 1993, wasn't it? And it was, it was yeah. so it's quite a modern award, but it is one down from the VC. It can be given posthumously, and thank God that we're here to discuss it today. You know, that, and we all know, you know, that you, your friend that died in battle, people that have you, but you've won that for all of them. You haven't just won it for for you; it's for all your actions. And it's it's for everyone, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And and you should be really proud. And you know, 
you're right. When you when your mum got to meet the Queen, I would imagine that, or saw the Queen, I would imagine that was worth a slap in the face. Yeah, for sure. No, it was, and it was nice to 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 give them a nice. It's closure as well, right? I mean, how many people have been injured? You know, life changing injuries. They haven't had uh, they haven't had to meet the Queen. They haven't been given an award, and they've just got to get on with it every day, grind for the rest of their lives with no legs or this or that. Feel forgotten because they might have lost touch with the blokes. So again, you know, there was a bit of guilt there, but for the family, we had a nice day of a bit of glory at the end that hopefully puts it to bed for my mum and dad um, and my little brother who went through it, who was 15 and, you know, gets a phone call at school. Your brother's been shot in the throat and that's all he got, you know. So it was nice, mate. And it's where, you know, I'm very aware of how lucky I am to have a day like that because a lot of lads don't. Um, they're just but you're a great ambassador. Back to the grind. You're, you're a great ambassador for one, the British Army, and two, for the award. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. you. Know, and, 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 you know, as I say, I'm really proud of, of, of all of you, but for you to win that, Jesus, that's unbelievable. And but like I say, you've got to buy a lottery ticket every night because to get shot twice in a day, incredible. And if you don't want to talk about it, I'm not, I'm not offended, but your, your friend getting killed on the last day... Mm. I mean, that must have been absolutely horrendous, knowing that you were leaving the following day. You know, we hear of all these tales. The last person that got killed in the in the First World War was 11 minutes from the 11th, the 11th, you know, and all the all these types of things. But how did that day unfold? We, my, me, the Palestine Cavalry have got this thing, you know, Herrick 11, sorry, the, the previous Afghan tour, we lost someone on the last patrol. Oh. Um, and, and we're going out on the last patrol this time. And um, I mean, Jay wasn't household cavalry; he was at Royal Intelligence Corps, but wasn't even a decent. wasn't even a de- It wasn't a nice, easy op. We were going back to a shithole. We knew it was going to be punchy. Um, you've also got the problem is you're handing over with another unit, so you sort of have half and half. So because right. they they need to cut their teeth and they see how you do things and they can go well. That's good. That's bad. They can make their own judgments on that. But they're about to take over for the next six months. But what you don't have is continuity of a of a of a, a ninety strong fighting unit. You've now got half and half, and you know it's a bit. You know when it when it the going gets tough, you might need have needed that. You need the momentum, the lads that know each other, the quickness, the slickness. You've also got command and control. You've got different opinions, and you're trying to do it slowly so that the other guys can learn from it. But you're doing it live. I mean, I mean, imagine you being in a training course, but you you're yeah. now doing it in a live you know, yeah. active shooter scenario. It's pretty mental when you think of that dynamic. Yeah. Anyway, everything unfolded. The day went to shit. Um, we got caught in an ambush. Um, and to the point where my position was compromised, I had, you know, as a sniper, you like to be, you know, 400 metres minimum away from the fight, from the shooting, because otherwise what's the point in having this big, long barrel? Yeah. You need you need an assault rifle. You know, five-round magazine is not useful when you're 100 metres away. So we said, look, we need to move. We went to move and quick brief, like that. So we come under contact now. Listen to my QBOs. If if we come under casual, if we get if we have a casualty, listen to me. I'll deal with it. Make sure the gun comes up at the front, and we'll just get a massive rate of fire down and pull the guy out. As soon as we left that back door, come under contact, ambush. Um, we're dealing with it, um, and I've also had a load of officers with me who were like the OC. Uh, the guy that controls the artillery, 
not me, you know, I wasn't in command, but, you know, the OC, the guy that controls the artillery, you know, some very important people caught in this ambush. They don't need to be fighting. They need to be back on the radio, get pulling in the assets. You know, they need control and to, they yeah. can, they're the guys that can change things. So me and my mate Grant, another sniper, we sort of took control of the firefight. We said, you you get back behind that compound there in cover. And we were going to slowly extract the boys there. I said, I need one guy to stay with me. Um, Jay volunteered. I said, the rest of you get back. So we covered their extraction. And then me and him were going to move back one by one. When you're moving back one by one, he moved first. And you, because you're firing, you can't be looking back, really. You would need to be concentrating because you're covering him. What you do wait for is you hear the round go past your head from that direction. Yeah. That's the sign that you move. That never came. Uh, turn around, Jay was face down. He'd been shot in, the, shot in the face, dead before he hit the ground. But we're now in the middle of an ambush and you've got to, you've got to deal with it. Um, I wasn't strong enough to drag his body on my own. Um, just you're in a mud, muddy field. You, you know, trying to keep him alive. He was dead before he hit the ground. I've heard that later um, from the doc. But you're doing your first aid. You're doing your CPR. You also deal with an ambush. You know, you're mid-extraction. So people are fucking getting out, you know, running, not running away, but they're moving backwards. You now have to call them forwards because they don't know what's going on. Radios weren't working. It was just one of them situations. And real shit, shit, shit day. But, you know, it is part of the parcel. Jay was super brave to the end. He went out like a true warrior. And I can say this now, years years down the line, I can talk about it like this. It wasn't always the case. Um, you know, I'm very, very close to the family and he was, he was a real, real, real warrior, real hero. But I would have liked, like I said, when I got shot, I had three months to go back and even the score. I went back to Yakshaw. We, you know, we'd done a job on that place and I felt, you know, for my own ego, we'd gone back there and done a business. And you went back off that op, probably the ropiest I'd ever been, you know, it's different when you get injured you don't feel sorry for yourself when your mate's been killed it's it's very different emotionally and uh they're like that ah, weapon off you you're going home and uh, i honestly would have stayed out there for another six months just to have go back you know gone through the cycle and felt a bit better about it but instead they just ripped you out of the situation and it's, they've ripped that band-aid off you, you know you've just left it very raw yeah yeah and, and and going back into the real world then you're very venomous very bitter very angry and you've got nowhere to outlet it, you know, and this is when it could have gone dangerous with either drink, fighting, fucking drugs, whatever it would have been. Um, it was a bit, bit of a sticky situation. Um, it was fucking horrible, to be honest. Just simply because of the timing, that's no one's fault. But um, very venomous, very venomous. <laughs> and, I, and I get it, mate. I do get it. So you, you're back in the UK. How long did you serve before you signed off after that? I left. So that was 2013. I got back end of 2013 I left the army in the end of 2017 um did a couple of things um all sniper related so I taught at the sniper school did my sniper instructors first um or sniper commanders as it's called did some pretty cool stuff went to Canada Kenya uh, Norway went to Norway doing um Nordic skiing and biathlon and stuff like that it was all right but I was just chasing it and you do what you do I'm not you know I was cutting around saying you know you weren't there like some sort of Vietnam vet but You've got some 21-year-old officer pulling me for telling. I remember once I was teaching a lesson when I was training recruits, and um, the 21-year-old officer pulled me aside and said, "You're teaching it wrong. That's not how you react to effective enemy fire." And I could have left him in that fucking woodblock. And uh, do you know what? It's not his fault. He's he's doing what he's taught, but he maybe didn't manage it as well or communicate as well. And um, I thought, do you know what? 
it's time for you to go. It's, uh, it's not, you're not enjoying it. You've, you know, and you, you're at risk of becoming one of them crusty old blokes telling his story too much, just boring people to, to death. You know, I'm Cloudbert from uh, Only Fools and Horses. So I thought, get out, start fresh. And then it took me a little while, but you realise, you, yeah, you can talk about it. I'm happy to come on the podcast and talk about it, but you're not Simon O'Ne, the sniper. You know, I'm now, I'm Arthur's dad. Um, I'm do what I do. You know, it's, it's cool to talk about over a beer, but you've got to, you've got to leave it or it's going to, it's going to eat you alive. But that, but, but what you're, the cathartic moment of, of discussing it, and I don't know, I don't know how, how many other podcasts you've done, and I'm very honoured to have you on here, but to talk about things is, is good. It's what we do, isn't it? Because when we bottle things up, I always remember a, a pathologist at a post-mortem, we were, we were talking and, you know, I, I used to go to a, a few post-mortems a week, quite depressing, but that, that was part of my life. And what he said, if you ever have problems, don't put them in alcohol, at which point he picks up a, a, an organ and puts it, you know, he's got it in, in alcohol. He said, because all you do is you preserve your problems forever in the same That's way that you're is. preserving this heart or whatever organ it was. And they're, they're right. So to talk about it and to, to share share what's gone on, you got me going, mate. You've had me going a few times today. Um, mind you, don't take it the wrong way, but I quite strictly come dancing. But anyway, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> but when you signed off, how did you feel about, you know, you've given back your ID cards, your DPM, whatever, whatever you've, you've had to give back, your kit's gone into the quartermaster. How did you feel? Uh... I was pretty pissed off with the army by then, mate. Uh, as much as I enjoyed it, there was just the, the the bureaucracy of it, of the the room inspections. You know, I buried buried mates and you know taken life and commanded small sniper to sniper teams. You know, as part of a reconnaissance unit in Helmand Province at the age of 23. You know, 21, 22, 23. But I'm getting told by some weasel I can't come home this weekend because there's a watermark on my mirror or, you know, someone's done this. And I felt like saying, fuck off. So did the classic thing, grew a beard, grew my hair, drank too much. Um, I did still train, but not as much. Um, and, you know, late nights, partying, doing what you want, dabbling in things that you couldn't do when you was in the army. Um, and funnily enough, you come straight back to full circle. But I think you've got to do it. Um, of getting my hair cut, shaving, and I'm a bit, you know, but keeping myself in check, looking after yourself, having the discipline, having the morning routine, and doing all these things that you actually thought I was never going to do this again because I've left. And yeah, you soon come crawling back. <laughs> it's important, and, isn't it? And what does life look like for you now? Because, I mean, you you, you do charity stuff. You you know, PTSD is a, a massive talking point. What what do you do now? Um, I run a, I run a, um, a small business. Um, Man United are playing, um, or you know, football team. We 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 subcontract to a broadcast company, drive their trucks in. We run all the cables from the trucks to the cameras to the microphones. You know, pitch side interviews, all that sort of thing. Um, they put it on air. You know, all the engineers come in and the boffins and the directors. And then once that's done, we rip it out, put it back on the truck, drive it to the next venue. Um, I've, I've worked with a lot of ex-army guys and I've got my own company that hires out some of the equipment they use um, and I'm slowly building that up but you know life for me now is um, well I had a midlife crisis I bought a Harley Davidson 
But um, <laughs> life for me now, mate, is, is learning what it's like to be a dad um, and enjoying it, mate. I, like I said, I've, a lot of negatives come from a lot of negative things that we've maybe spoken about, but you've turned it into a positive. I've come close to death. I've lost friends. And, um, you know, in the, the charity that I was lucky enough to, to sort of be part of, um, we had a big quote and it says the, the turning point in a veteran's life or someone, you know, I think it would apply to yourself is not when they think about dying for the people they love, but they start living for them instead. Um, you know, the lads that are gone, you can't change. You've got, that you've got, they died so you can have this opportunity. What are you doing wasting it? What are you doing getting sad? You know, they're not here. They did that because they want, you know, for you. So you got, you got to make the most of it. And once you see it like that, instant switch, isn't it? Um, I think yeah. that's it really, mate. I mean, so what's your company called? Uh, 338 Cable Hire. 338 after the sniper rifles. I'm highly imaginative with my name. Um, 338 Cable Hire said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go out on the jobs. Um, when I'm not, I work on the cable. I get to drive to work in my pickup truck with a dog in the passenger seat. I'm happy as Larry, mate. That is that, that, I'm happy doing that. You do West Ham? I am West Ham fan, yeah. I'm West Ham fan. I, I've done West Ham. How do you now feel... The way that we extricated from Afghanistan, how did that make you feel? Glad you, you brought this, brought back to this point. Um, you know, I've taken life, I've seen life being taken, and uh, you you justify it some way in your head. I think, you know, I went off to Afghan thinking it was glorious, it was the right thing to do. It wasn't quite, quite landing on the beaches of Normandy and saving your country, but those people are bad people the ideology does need fighting it they would if they had their way it'd be a very different england and very very different europe um and i'd made my peace with that and then after the way we pulled out of afghanistan i just thought it was for fuck all and you, you know when something clicks you like i've been played i was like i was just a pawn government doesn't give a fuck no one gives a fuck everyone's saying we should never have been in Afghan. And you really, really, really then, you know, Jay that died, not saying he died for nothing, never ever thought that, but you start to think differently. And then you realize it's never about that. You know, what is what is what is the United Kingdom? It's ex-policemen like yourself. It's people that have a bit of pride about them, you know, have a sense of purpose, whatever it is, it's it's even if it's the the road sweeper that gets up every morning, makes sure his uniform's smart and sweeps the road when no one's looking. That to me is British people. And that's why you do it. You know, it's not the government does not represent us, in my opinion. Uh, the media definitely doesn't, and you start to cling on to that. Uh, you know, that that's my opinion, but you, it was a it was a venomous journey getting there, very sour. Uh, but do you know what? The the fact is that the sacrifices that were made made so many lives better out there you know the women could be educated all the all the positives i think for me as an onlooker the fact that it's all going back to where it was that's the bit i find really hurtful really distasteful and i've got a lot of friends who have been out there in battle and you know they've lost mates and the similar stories to yourself and i feel for them they don't they don't, but I do, as you know, as a, as a member of the public, and I am proud, absolutely to the core. Your PTSD battles, and, and I, I understand exactly why you, you know, why you have had PTSD. But you're you're involved with uh, a charity that, or yeah. were in charity that deals with PTSD. 
how does that all work? So uh, my best mate, uh, Paul Minter, we were in lockdown together. Um, he, he was di- discharged from the army from PTSD. He did five tours of Iraq and Afghan, not 10, but five between Iraq and Afghan. I think three Afghan, two Iraq. Sorry if I'm wrong, Paul. He, he came up with this idea. He basically, there's a big stigma attached, you know, well, come, come and see us if you've got PTSD. As soon as you go and see them, they strip your ID card off you, take your uniform off you, you'll never hold a weapon again. You're sent home on sick leave and, and let you leave the army and you left them out on your own. So long story short, he goes, I've got to do something big to make this a name. So you come up with a name, Head Up Charity, you know, keep your head up. Um, again, we're very imaginative, my peer group of friends. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and he ran 5,800 miles around the UK coastline. No way. 30 miles, 30 miles a day. And every time he stopped off, he relied on someone taking him in so he could tell our story or hear their story. A lot of them were bereaved families or ex-veterans or whatever. Right. So he did that. Um, myself and then two other lads, um, we started the charity. Um, and they have just rode the Atlantic. They've just finished last week. Um as a part of a team of four i mean they've stitched me up now i've got to do something but the aim is to build this have you decided what you're going to do yeah it's called summit to city so climb mont blanc cycle from there to calais row the channel and then run to london but um thankfully the little man was born and i can put it off a year (laughs) um but um the aim is to build a retreat that you can, as long as you can prove you're in the army, eventually it'll be emergency services as well, but we need to, you know, not yeah, run before we can walk. Yeah. Um, build a retreat where you come and live with us for seven days. And we're not trying to, you know, if you're quite serious, we'll then signpost you to an awesome charity called PTSD Resolution. Which anyone you know who's going through it, ring them. They got me out of the hole. They'll get many people out of the hole. But um, seven days, live with us. Um, it sounds a bit, you know, if I don't pitch it right, so some people will say it's not for me. Sleep, you know, how to how to get a decent night's sleep. So power down routine at night, cold water therapy, journaling, you know, positive mindset methods, breathing techniques, um, out, you know, sorting your meal, your, your, your diet out, food that's going to make you anxious, food that's going to help that, um, meditation. And you're only dipping your toe into each of these. You don't have to, you're not going to come out, you know, a complete hippie, you know, with your, with your tie-dyed trousers on. But you are going to pick up a few things that you go, I need that to help me sleep better at night, you know, little, little hints and tips. And then we all start breeding it and it's just ways to live better. That mean you don't have to take time out from work and it can save your career. You learn that in the army or the police force, you know, you guys go back on the beat every day. You can learn a couple of these techniques that help you manage through the, the, the high, the, the hard, the, the, the trudges through the hard times. Then it's game on. It's prevention rather than cure. Um, and if you are at a point where you need a bit more, then we'll signpost you to a charity that can help. But we want to teach prevention rather than cure, better ways of living so you don't get that. You know, definitely with the techniques we teach and the things we learn about and, you know, cold water therapy and doing bits and bobs that I can integrate into my normal life would have been a di- different road for myself in regards to trauma and how I went through, you know. Yeah, mate, I'm absolutely aghast. You've got so much motivation. I think it's absolutely commendable. And if any of those lovely people would spend an hour or so talking to me, I would absolutely love it. We've got 90 countries that listen to us. And if you know, if we can get a, a bit of a, a mindset going here, it'd be absolutely brilliant. So if there's anyone you can introduce me to, I'll be very grateful. 
I think Paul Paul Minter, the lad who ran around the UK, 100%. He's he's the driving force and he's fully employed yep. by Head Up. Um, he he'd be the man to talk to. We'll, we'll get you in touch, mate. Perfect. Thank you very much. But before we go any further, sir, one, I'd like to thank you for having me laughing and crying in equal measure in this. Um, like I say, I've said it a number of times. I am proud of you, mate, and and I'm I'm sure your friends and family are as well. You probably take it all in your stride now as part of your daily life, you know, but you're a hero. That's, that goes without saying. But before we conclude this interview, and if you've been dealt with by the police, you'll understand this bit, but is there anything you'd like to add or <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today, sir? Uh, no comment. No, I'm sorry. Force of habit. No, I'm only joking. Um, what, what would I say? Um, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, again, I listened to a couple of your podcasts and in, instantly you've, you awesome manner about you and you, you definitely get the best out of people but also you know i fully support the police i think you've got a really tough job uh, i think the media are absolutely disgusting but we, we could probably go on for hours about that with regards to you guys but um you know fair play to you i imagine now it's probably a thankless task um yeah so bad. super thankless task and um yeah you know hats off i mean you know people can play what do you what do you do when your house gets burgled or you're in need or your, your mother gets assaulted you call yeah. the police people yeah. forget that I, I, and I'm with you, but I, that's brought out one more question, actually. Having fought to maintain people's freedoms and you've lost friends, you've been there, you know, the whole theatre, to watch people that you defended come over here and demonstrate about the freedoms that they now have, how does that make you feel as a veteran? It really Chad answer now. Um, wasn't our job. We signed up to defend the enemies, foreign and domestic, you know, to Her Majesty the Queen. It was Her Majesty the Queen when I signed it or, or swore my oath of allegiance. And, and that's that, you know. Hopefully one day they wise up and they go, they realise why they have these freedoms. But if they don't, you know, I hate to say this, but lions don't, don't bother themselves with the opinions of lambs. If you're going to be that narrow-minded, good for you. I'm glad you're safe. But, uh, you know, a lot of people made sacrifices you may never even understand. Uh, you know, good luck to you. Good answer, son. All right, son. God bless you. Thank you so much. Yeah, for thanks, support. Paul. Thank you for your time. I absolutely loved it. And, uh, yeah, I'm still sitting here now shaking. So thank you. All right. I'll speak soon, mate. Take care. Have a nice day. Take care. Bye-bye.